As you know, it's important to me that the supplements I recommend and use are of the highest quality. That's why I stock the Protocol for Life Balance product line at my online dispensary, drhoffman.com slash protocol for life balance. Protocol for Life Balance offers a wide range of professional grade products using ingredients backed by strong scientific research, including methyl action. Methyl action contains B vitamins in their active forms, promoting a vital process called methylation, which helps maintain normal homocysteine levels, supporting neurological, cardiovascular, eye, and bone health. Methyl action is a good choice for anyone who wants to support their overall health and well being. It is especially beneficial for individuals wanting to keep their homocysteine levels within normal range and want to age gracefully. For more information and to order methyl action, just go to drhoffman.com slash protocol for life balance. That's drhoffman.com slash protocol for life balance. drhoffman.com slash protocol for life balance. Methyl action. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, a podcast that I'm very, very much looking forward to sharing with you uh, because today's subject is food addiction. We're going to talk to an expert. She's Dr. Joan Iflin. She's a PhD. She also has an MBA. She's a fellow of the American College of Nutrition and a nutrition counselor specializes in the science of processed food addiction and recovery. Uh, she's founder of the Food Addiction Reset. Uh, you can find that uh, at her website, foodaddictionreset.com. And uh, she's the author of several books on the subject. And she's also uh, the subject of some very uh, provocative articles recently. Uh, one is from People Magazine, where they interviewed her. The other is from The Washington Post. Uh, and it has to do with the implications of our newly extensive forays into weight loss drugs and their impact on mood. So this is a just a very, very uh, timely issue uh, to discuss. So welcome, Dr. Ifland. It's a pleasure having you on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my great pleasure. So uh, first of all, uh, I think until recently, it was recognized that people have food cravings, right? You know, like the commercial, mm -hmm. I bet you just can't eat one, you know, but it was kind of like yep. uh, part of pop culture uh, and, uh, you know, just general lore that people could get hooked on foods. But the science has actually progressed to the point where we now realize that this is a real clear and present danger. Can you can you elaborate? Mm -hmm. Yes, and two, two, um, let's talk about two tracks here. One is um, what happened to the business practices around processed foods? And then, as you said, the science has, has really progressed on this. And when you start with the business practices, and I've got a Stanford MBA way in my background, but I am very keen on understanding business models. So there is an addiction business model, and the tobacco industry really perfected it. When they bought Kraft, Nabisco, and General Foods in three short years between 1985 and 1988, they brought that addiction business model with them. 
So you're saying that this is like a a diversification strategy, excuse me, that this is a diversification strategy for an embattled industry where uh, it was recognized that they were uh, purveying a a product that A, kills you, and B, was designed to be a delivery system that was highly addictive, uh, that they had Uh to take a little bit of a different tack, you know, maybe do a little greenwashing around their enterprise. Well, they... um you know, they were in trouble with the courts, but I think what drove them into the field to that degree, I mean, that's huge. They controlled 10% of American food spending within a couple of years. But what was it? So, yes, they were losing out on the um, tobacco market, but the key thing that happened, in my opinion, is the, the marketing of high fructose corn syrup. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. The addiction business model has five A's. And it's you have hidden addictive substances, so you have addictive product formulation, like they hid nicotine in cigarettes. Uh, they hide ex- uh, extra alcohol and low alcohol drinks. They hid a lot of sugar, fat, salt in processed foods. So you have addictive product formulation. You have young age of onset and so they went after 10-year-old boys with the Joe Camel cartoon campaign. Mm-hmm. And when they got a hold of processed foods, they went after children with sugar with the Kool-Aid. And, and the uh, breakfast like the wacky, cereals, which the, are ubiquitous on the kids' shows. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And the, the sodas. and the, oh, So that's the second one, young age of onset. And then there are three. It's availability. So as they took out the cigarette vending machines, they put in the, the snack and soda machines. It's advertising. So you have to create delusion around the product. Like they made cigarettes sexy and rebellious, and they made sugar for children like really fun. These are deadly substances. So same business model. But the third, the fifth one, the final one, is affordability. Mm-hmm. So you have to make this substance, whatever it is, cheap enough that people can buy it often enough to maintain the sensitivity of the craving pathways in the brain. Well, before the introduction of high fructose corn syrup, there were tobacco companies in food. Um, tobacco bought uh, um, Hawaiian Punch in 1963. They knew how to do this. They knew how to apply that addiction business model. But why, boom, you know, why suddenly in the 1980s do they own 10% of American spending on food? It was because they no longer had to depend on the sugar cartel for a sweetener. For an so they found sweetener. an alternate source that was very, very plentiful, which is the very corn, uh, corn, mm-hmm. which is, you know, we were, there's so much of a surplus of corn, it's even subsidized by the government. Yep. Uh, so that yep. uh, we can yep. make gasohol out of it. You know, it's just, uh, we're overflowing with oh, corn. Yeah. Yeah. And Rob Lustig has published a paper on how high fructose corn syrup goes through the system, kind of organ by organ, just like corn alcohol. So now you are flooding in the market with products with a high level of high fructose corn syrup and selling them to children. So your your next question was, what is how has the science progressed? Mm-hmm. Well, researchers around the world have looked at these individual um, products 
And they have been able to demonstrate in a lot of different ways that these processed foods create a brain that is doing the same thing as a brain that's addicted to drugs or alcohol. Hyperactive craving pathways, hyperactive stress pathways, hyperactive behavior pathways, and hypoactive frontal lobe. And that Which is where the executive function, where restraint generally occurs. That's what constrains yes, our where, impulses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Impulse control, decision-making, mm-hmm. problem-solving, learning, memory, and uh, attention span. So, okay, when, so, so just, when, let's, let's back up a little bit. I think some of the initial research uh, was done on traditional addictive substances like, you know, cocaine, amphetamines. They've done, yep. They now have techniques yep. where they can do sophisticated neuroimaging to see literally what parts of the brain, what structures light up and what functions uh-huh. are dark or hypofunctioning. So given that mm-hmm. model, they have then... Uh, they have now done research that shows that similar changes occur when people ingest uh, processed food, uh, sugar, yes. junk, uh, you know, yes. things that are laden with fat, French fries, the highly addicted foods. Yes. So as, as soon as brain imaging technology became available in the 1990s, Nora Volkoff, who was the executive director and still is, of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, she started looking at the brains of drug-addicted people and obese people. And she published really early on, so we're talking over 20 years ago, she published early on about the similarities between the patterns of firing and the flow of um, glucose in the brain, the similarity between drug and alcohol-addicted brains and the brains of obese people. And now we have research showing that obese people are eating more processed foods than lean people. So it's just so sad. And when you think about them doing this to newborns, you know, uh, baby formula that's over 50% sugar Mm -hmm. and um, using... So there's, there's internal documents showing the tobacco industries taking the Marlboro Country Store, which is an addiction mechanism. You, um, you know, you give somebody three cigarettes and their craving pathways begin to tune into nicotine. Mm-hmm. Well, then you put a coupon on the pack as they buy their first pack of cigarettes. There's a coupon on there. Oh, if you save enough coupons... You can send them in for stuff. And so they buy more cigarettes because they want the coupons to send in for stuff. And then what, is, what happens to stuff is a trigger. The, the belt buckle, the lighter, it's all Marlboro mm-hmm. logoed stuff. And it actually triggers cravings. So now the person is so, wearing so, so, so if, cravings. Let's unpack that a little bit. What you're saying is that they kind of mastered the technology of getting people yes. hooked 
And there is a science mm-hmm. to that. There actually is neuroscience that supports that. Mm-hmm. that they've done research. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of it's animal research, you know, typically, you know, uh, you know, rats in a, in a maze kind of situation, you know, yeah. uh, pushing a, a lever to get some kind of reward. But then uh, there's obviously human research and there's neuroimaging research. So in a, in a conscious way, and I think that's why they nailed the tobacco industry. They said, look, you knew this. I mean, we saw the movie. The Insider with Russell Crowe and what he was Mm -hmm. basically, he was Mm -hmm. a whistleblower. He said, look, we have the documentation here that shows that the industry knew exactly what they were doing. And it was profit driven Mm -hmm. and it was to the detriment of people because we knew that that product made people sick and killed people. End of story. Mm -hmm. All right. So they took that. You just summarized it beautifully. They took that same model. And they adapted it to sugar for children in the Kool-Aid wacky warehouse. Mm-hmm. And and we do have research now showing that um, obese children, which I don't think they're obese children, I think they're processed food addicted children, you know, their frontal lobes don't develop yeah. like lean children. This is so damaging. Mm-hmm. And But the other thing that they learned was to capture the media outlets so that you wouldn't have negative reporting on mm-hmm. processed foods the way there was negative right. reporting on cigarettes. Yeah, because they lost the battle yeah. on cigarettes. That that ship has sailed. Yep. But now we're talking about yep. processed food. But there's greater and greater awareness about youth, what are called UPFs, ultra-processed foods. Can you, can you come up with a definition of that? Well, I... Um, So I've been in this field since 1996 when I got off of sugars and flowers and my life changed incredibly. Mm -hmm. And what I know is that the degree of processing is not the issue. So I know Carlos Montero uh, created Ultra Processed Foods. I'm glad he did. It gave people more courage to talk about processed foods. But when he says things like... um, you know, if you if you make cookies at home, they're safer. Mm-hmm. That is just wildly not mm-hmm. true. Or or that the, the chips um, from Whole Foods like saying, are, are better than the chips from you know, oh, Lay's yeah, yeah, uh, from a regular supermarket, right? That kind of thing. Because that's like saying that if you make your meth at home, you're safer <laughs> than if you buy meth on the street. Okay. It's it's might be true, but it's not helpful. It's mm-hmm. not going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So ultra-processed foods, you know, it's it's sugars and um, fats, but it remarkably does not include bread. Mm-hmm. So bread is one of the worst ultra-processed food. I mean, worst processed foods. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got flour and gluten. Mm-hmm. Flour affects the serotonin pathways, and gluten affects the opioid pathways. And, and it's super yummy. So There's nothing a, like, a, you it. know, warm, like a warm baguette, oh, yeah. you know, fresh out of the oven, you know, oh, you yeah. break it open and the aroma knocks you over. I mean, it, wow, very, very yeah. inviting. So that's, there, there are many flaws in the concept of ultra-processed food. But what I do like about it is that researchers are using the definition and they are they are creating good findings that people who eat more ultra-processed foods have more diabetes, more obesity, more heart disease, more depression, more anxiety. So these are prospective studies 
They take a food diary at the beginning of five years, and then they go back and take a health profile at the end of five years, and they correlate. They can see who, uh, what happened to the people who were eating a lot of UPS, UPS, and they do. They have the cancer. They have the diabetes. They have all the, um, you know, the Alzheimer's. And the people who are not eating processed foods don't have them. Mm-hmm. So that's a very powerful set of evidence. There's a great cohort going through France. Um, something Santé. The, nut- nutri- the Nutri-Santé group, I think, are the studies that are done. Thank you. That. Thank yes. you. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so that kind of evidence has really built up. Uh, animal evidence is fantastic. There's um, a relatively new study that came out of University of Boston, Pedro Cotton's uh, lab, where they gave um, three groups of, of rats. The first group got unlimited access to sugar. The second group got unlimited access to fat. And the third group got um, unlimited access to regular uh, chow, animal chow. Mm-hmm. So they were able to show, you know, as anybody would have predicted, the progression. What you're looking for to demonstrate an addiction is progression. The animal is eating more and more and more of it over time. So I think it was a 21 or 28 day study. And, and you know, absolutely, those rats just ate more and more sugar every day for those 28 days. But the, the rats who were eating fat did too. And what was so interesting is if you measured it by volume, the sugar was more addictive. Mm-hmm. But if you measured it by calories, the fats were more addictive than the sugars. Mm-hmm. So now, when you when you see a product that's high in sugar and high in fat, this is just like it's it's what's called polysubstance use, mm-hmm. and it makes the addiction much harder to put into remission because fats affect the same pathway as cannabis and sugar affects the same pathway as alcohol, the mm-hmm. dopamine. So now you've got two pathways to quiet down rather than just one. It's diabolical. So let's look at the definition of addiction. And addiction means that you're hooked, uh, that you want to keep getting more and more, there's when we talk about addiction in the classic sense, we talk about tolerance. You know, people develop a tolerance mm-hmm. and, and need more. And I think those experiments demonstrate mm-hmm. that. But one feature of addiction is withdrawal. Now, you work with, a lot with mm-hmm. patients who are food addicted patients and clients. Um, do you do you, has it been demonstrated that there is a phenomenon of withdrawal when people yes. uh, go cold turkey on these substances? Yes, yes, and um, it's, so how do we measure that? What we look at is, what the researchers look at is, is somebody eating for reasons other than hunger? Because if they're eating because they're angry, or they're eating because they're tired, or they're eating because they have a headache, that's withdrawal avoidance mm-hmm. that's not eating that's that's using well we actually coined a term control. for it and it's being used in advertising it's hangry are you hangry and then the, the solution oh, is to eat a snickers bar 
you know, in that famous series of oh, commercials with Betty, uh, Betty White. Uh, you know, yeah. the late Betty White, uh, was featured in those commercials. And, uh, you know, she, she turned into a, a raging monster who was hangry and then reverted to, you know, quiet Betty White after she been yeah. sated with a Snickers bar. That's pretty insidious oh. advertising, but it kind of hits the spot, doesn't it? It's just, it, well, the thing that these advertisers are doing is they're flaunting. They're just flaunting it in our faces <laughs> that they're killing us with cravings. Yeah. I um, was just looking through the grocery store offerings at potato chips one day, and I, I one, one of the bags in big letters on on the front said addictive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, you know, 1.6 million Americans die every year from diet related diseases. This is four times the rate of the worst year of COVID. And people are, this is just incredibly clever to make it normal to be addicted. It's normal to be taking medications. It's normal. To have multiple diagnoses, and and now it it's it is normal. People are eating seventy three percent of their food in processed foods, mm-hmm. and um, I think ninety three percent of Americans have a diagnosis of some kind. So they can just keep on going. It's not it's because it's so many different substances, and it's so socially acceptable. It's quite different from the dynamics of tobacco where it was one substance. It was nicotine. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely clear. You know, the dogs smoked, they got cancer. Mm-hmm. People who smoked got cancer. People who didn't smoke didn't get it, or they they were exposed to secondhand smoke. But it was clear. So in 1964, the Surgeon General was able to say, smoking causes cancer. Stop it. And it's what you were saying at the beginning of the the interview, that the tobacco companies just looked around for another market. Because the other thing that addictions do is they transfer. Mm. So this is why you can't just get off of sugar. Well, that, that's an interesting point that you transfer. make is that I recall as a medical student, you know, part of our, you know, to, they wanted us to become familiar with the problem of alcoholism, which is a real medical problem. And so uh, one of the AA groups uh, kindly invited us medical students to sit in and observe. And what I noted when I went to the meeting, and these are all people who are abstaining from alcohol, is that they had a big urn of coffee there. They had uh, yep. a couple of bowls of donuts there. Uh, yep. and they, and there was a, and there was a, a, a cloud of cigarette smoke <laughs> up to the ceiling there. Yep. So that the people yep. were abstinent yep. from alcohol, but the part of their, the craving part of their brain had not subsided. But the, the, the thought was yes. this was, uh, uh, harm reduction. In other words, we got you off the alcohol, which is imminently going to kill you. And I guess we can deal with those other substances later because they're going to, you know, they're only going to give you sort of a slow roll towards the graveyard. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, that was, that, that was sadly used. Uh, and then in, in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, yeah, that's that what I heard it. Yeah. Flat out no longer true because the addiction business model had now been embedded in processed foods mm-hmm. that now when you, if you switched off cigarettes, you no, know, off of alcohol and onto processed foods, 
you you would still die. Mm-hmm. I and mean, it would. I, I wanted to. Just, yeah, I wanted to ask you about something that I came across recently. I found intriguing. It's the Yale Food Addictiveness Scale. And uh, mm-hmm. I tried. I tried to guess where you know some of my uh, Joneses lay on that scale. Um, I think for me, right at the pinnacle might be Reese's peanut butter cups because it's chocolate, it's <laughs> sugar, and there's a lot of fat. <laughs> you know, but, yes, so, yes. Uh, tell us about that scale. Where, what are some of the things that really top the scale? Well, um, ice cream, perfect combo, coffee, drinks, perfect. That, yeah. That, that have um, sugar and, and dairy. Dairy is quite addictive. Mm-hmm. It has four different kinds of casein. So some of it. those Starbucks monstrosities that are 450 calories, mm-hmm. that, that would be up right mm-hmm. up there because it's got the caffeine. That's super reinforcing, right? Because it's got the caffeine, which Reese's Cup does too, and the, and the chocolate. Oh. Okay. So the Yale food addiction scale is it's flawed. It's very, okay. very deeply flawed. Because they got mixed up, as almost everybody does, they got mixed up with eating disorders. Okay. So they have eating behavior mixed into the scale, and it depresses the prevalence. It depresses the number of how many people have this addiction. Hmm. But if you, because you have to meet criteria for, for eating, which is like saying, oh, to diagnose cocaine addiction, you have to meet criteria for snorting. Mm-hmm. No, no, stop, please. And uh, you know, cocaine addiction is cocaine addiction. It's not a snorting disorder. <laughs> and processed food addiction is not an eating disorder. It's an it's a substance use disorder. And so it's very, you know, the, the food industry just loves this eating disorders. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's an eating disorder. Which, which what kind of marginalizes it, you know, because uh, we, we can really uh, define eating disorders as a very, very small piece of the pie of the number of people. No, no, there's no food. such thing as an eating disorder. Okay. So I'm going to offer two, two well, unreally stunning bit of evidence is that um, three review articles have been published say, in the last seven or eight years. What a review article is, as you know, it's when a researcher looks at a whole group of studies and sees if there's a new conclusion that can come from looking at a whole group. So all three of these review articles looked at studies, brain imaging studies of people with an eating disorder diagnosis. You know, guess what was going on in all of those brains? All three of the studies came to the exact same conclusion, which is these brains were addicted. Mm-hmm. Not surprising. You know, the method of ingestion is not the issue. The fact that you're chewing and swallowing these drugs so, is so not I, the I issue. think I see the distinction. Your quibble is with, you know, eating disorder versus really calling it what it is, which is addiction, which is... Yeah. really what you focus on yeah. in your work. Uh, your book, Processed Food Addiction, is considered uh, a real landmark text in that regard. And it's available, uh, I, 
in textbook, uh, it's kind of an expensive proposition, but there's a paperback edition of it that is relatively inexpensive. Would it be informative for our listeners uh, who are concerned about this to look at that, or is that just for academic people and clinicians? That's not where I would start. That's not where I would start. Let me let me finish. I just want to say one thing about the Yale sure. food addiction scale. I mean, that scale comes out with prevalence rates in the 14% mm. range. But if you go back to the gold standard, which is the DSM-5-11 substance use disorder diagnostic criteria, you come up with 80% of the population <laughs> showing the and, and signs. For our listening showing. audience, that's the Bible of psychiatry, where they give the characteristics Diagnosis. of various conditions, you know, like whatever, bipolar disorder, and they slice and dice it, you know, all kinds of different psychiatric diagnoses. So what you're saying is if you if you look at the Bible of psychiatry and you actually apply mm-hmm. the criteria that they state there, mm-hmm. we're all addicts, or virtually all of us. <laughs> well, here's, here's how that runs down. So if you meet six or more of those 11 criteria, you are considered to have a severe addiction. Mm-hmm. And this is the breakthrough in treatment. So I, when I was writing the textbook, I wrote a full chapter on the evidence of that each of those 11 addiction criteria are showing up in eating behavior. Mm-hmm. So, and then, and then I saw that there was evidence that over 80% of the country is meeting six or more of those criteria. Mm-hmm. Over eighty percent of the country is overweight or obese, which means that they, they didn't intend to get that way. Mm-hmm. They met a criteria for unintended use. Almost a hundred percent of the people within three years will regain weight that they've lost. So that's another criteria: uh, failure to cut back. Cravings correlates with BMI, so cravings are another criteria. You've got three now. Use in spite of knowledge of consequences. Mm-hmm. Well, people who are overweight or obese or have high blood, they've all been told. They know it's not to good. Cut yeah. back, don't eat that. Yeah. So you have that criteria. And then the tolerance that you're talking about, that you see the percentage of processed foods that people are eating just climb. Mm-hmm. Once tobacco comes into processed foods, it goes from 50 to 60 to now it's over 70%. So you have tolerance over across the entire population and then the last one we talked about which which is um, eating when you're not hungry eating for yes what's all which is eating um, for reasons other than hunger for for just mere gratification yeah all right you've you've laid out no no to stop withdrawal to stop withdrawal to stop to address withdrawal right yeah that's the the significance of eating when you're not hungry the interpretation is that you're stopping yes. withdrawal. And that yeah, makes headache. sense. Yeah. You know, as a former smoker, I can attest to that because uh, I was always looking for an excuse to have my next cigarette. And I would say, I'm aggravated uh-huh. or, you know, this is stressful. But actually what was happening mm-hmm. is it had been, you know, an hour and a half since my last nicotine dosage. And I would actually create mm-hmm. a pretext for that. And, you know, I, I would mm-hmm. rationalize it by saying, oh, this is a tense situation or I really need to focus on this. I'm going to have. An, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I get it. All right. We need but to actually pop- you were in early stage withdrawal. Right. Right. Exactly. Which felt like stress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, great. We're going to yeah. pause because uh, we divide our podcast into two parts. We got a lot more to talk about, and in part two, I want to introduce uh, an important topic, which is uh, the topic of uh, some of the new medications that we have to address obesity. They do cut food cravings, but Doctor Ifland has a surprising perspective on these medications. They seem like a fix, but beware of fooling with Mother Nature's exquisite natural mechanisms. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Uh, This is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast, and we'll be right back with more on the subject of food addiction.